0: I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's two weeks before Christmas. Oh, shit. Christmas is two weeks from today as we sit and record this.
1: I'm not prepared.
0: I was going to ask, how's it going? How's your prep going? What's uh, what's the hot ticket item up there at uh, Castle Folks for the uh, Christmas season? You know, the fact that I
1: just felt a cold wave of dread passed through me when you reminded me how close Christmas actually is tells you how much thought I've put into it so far. We got a tree. Nice. That's that's the best thing I can say so far.
0: You're uh, meeting the minimum requirement of the Christmas season. That's right. Yeah. But you haven't like, you haven't checked in with your wife or children to see what gifts they may enjoy? You know, here and there, but who can, who can keep it all on their
1: head? You know, it's just, it's a lot.
0: I know. Well, with probably, uh, late night hockey and, uh, Recording amusing videos for the MMA junkie. You got a lot on your plate.
1: A lot. There's a lot to uh, do.
0: There's a lot of stuff going on up there.
1: All I know is that my oldest daughter wants a girl pirate dress, which I'm not really sure what that would look like or where to get one, but I'm going to do my best there.
0: That sounds like something that would be, in theory... Available.
1: Like I could just type that into Amazon,
0: you yeah, think? Yeah, gir- no, I'm actually 100% certain if you type "type girl, do it no. now. Do yep. it right now. Okay. Type girl pirate dress. You, d- you done
1: did it now. Into
0: Amazon and tell me what you get. This is great radio right It here. is.
1: This is what people tune in for. Right off the top, too. Um, Okay. I guess, I mean, these seem more like Halloween costumes. Well, yeah, but, you're probably uh, going
0: to get into some Halloween stuff.
1: Yeah. This one uh, definitely is for an older girl. Maybe college age. Okay.
0: You're painting a picture now. I'm starting to get a vibe off this uh, Halloween costume.
1: a different direction to go with it. Um, This one seems kind of like Lederhosen, but you know what? Now
0: I have a little hope. We'll figure this out. We'll refine our search. Don't you worry.
1: (laughs) It seems like the hat is going to be what really ties it together. The hat is what's going to make it read pirate.
0: Ben, you know I got my hands on some of that new Fulton Rourke 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash last week. Oh, yeah? How'd that go? It was amazing. And I'm not just saying that for advertising purposes. I'm telling you, as a human, I really really liked it. We told you guys about this stuff last week. The new shampoo and body wash that lathers up with notes of rosemary and peppermint, then rinses away to reveal notes of cedar and sage. It'll cleanse away sweat, dirt, and product from your hair and skin without over-drying. That's the advertising copy, but as a regular unscripted dude who washes his hair in the shower, I'm telling you it's dope. I need to get myself like a lifetime supply of it
1: well that is high praise uh let me add to that the latest offering in fulton and rourke's limited reserve line of solly colognes is called the sterling and so far it's their fastest selling of all time with notes of tobacco leather and vanilla sterling is a fantastic fragrance for the winter months so if you're still wrapping up your christmas shopping you can hurry over to fultonandrourke.com and also check out a full selection of gift sets for the dudes in your life yep
0: that includes the holiday dop kit gift set which will get you a bottle of their face wash and the new shampoo and body wash, travel-size bars of soap, and their vaunted cleansing tool. All of those are neatly packed up in their 100% American-made dop kit. It's a canvas and leather bag that is single-needle-stitched and made entirely of American military-spec materials. It is also pretty amazing. Check it all out, as usual, over at FultonandRourke.com. We got music again this week from our friend, the Fifth Element, a music producer out of Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at the Fifth Element, Facebook.com/slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com/slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know, that's the letter A in the word "tha tha." As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you listen to the show on. That stuff really does help our ranking and our rating, so lend us a hand if you've got a few minutes and write us a review. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, shocking news out of the local government beat this week as the mayor of T-City declares that wild jumping guillotine chokes are also dope as fuck. And in round number two, Dana White is totally not mad about George St. Pierre vacating the middleweight title, you guys. He expected this shit all along, which is why he put it in the fucking contract. Did we mention how not mad he is? And in round number three, it's two weeks before Christmas, and if the holiday season has your personal violence meter trending toward the red, good news, Bob Lawler versus Ralph Dos Anjos this weekend. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Cesar Fernandez. He writes, Is all Jermaine Sterling okay? Because I care about that. Marlon Murray seems to care about that. The UFC and its commentary team? Meh, not so much. Okay, well this seems, instead of saying like that the commentary
1: team does not care, especially Paul Felder sitting there, a conscientious guy to begin with, and a fighter himself, I'm sure he cares about the safety of other fighters, but it does seem like this has been kind of a long-standing like practice of the UFC when it comes to people who are down on the mat after like a big knockout or something, the cameras will go to great lengths just to not get that person in the shot. And the only way you really know usually that it's, you know, worse than usual is you get a tweet from somebody who's on the scene being like, oh, by the way, they're putting him on a stretcher right now, or he still hasn't woken up. And other than that, if you were just going by the UFC broadcast, you'd never really know it. That's clearly like just part of the like the stated standards and practices of the UFC broadcast at this point, right?
0: Yeah, uh, and I think you, you were going to say probably unfair to paint the commentary team as like really being at fault here because uh, in a lot of instances, they're bound by their jobs. They're out there trying to do their jobs. They're employed by the UFC. And uh, I think what our inference is here is that the UFC is probably calling the shots on what does and does not get mentioned on the broadcast. So a guy like Paul Felder, who you uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, if left to his own designs, I think might very well talk about the safety of Aljamain Sterling and his condition following this just really uh, scary knee-to-the-face knockout by Marlon Marais. Uh but he's probably limited as in, a, in his ability to do that by his employer, which I think everyone out there in listener land that has a job probably knows what that's like. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes it seems like the only guy on the UFC broadcast team that has enough seniority and and maybe... Uh, has a little bit of that fuck you money. Might be Joe Rogan. Cause, right. cause like, especially in, in more recent years, he's, he's been known to, uh, voice his own opinion strongly and freely on the broadcast. But it is, uh, it does harken back to earlier discussions, Ben, that we've had on this show before about the, the noted differences when a company, a fight company in this instance, owns its own broadcast, controls the means of its own production, rather than uh, in some other more mainstream sports like football, baseball, or basketball, where the entity, which is the league, has a relationship with the network that broadcasts it. But it's primarily, in most cases, the network that controls you know, what does and does not go on the sports broadcast.
1: Yeah, and that affects the broadcast that you see in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I like about Paul Felder on the mic, and let's take a second to say Paul Felder does an awesome job at that. Seemingly with no real broadcasting training, he just showed up and was a natural at it, which that's a a gift just dropping in your lap. If you're the UFC and and Fox sports at this point. Uh, But one of the things I like about him is his ability to kind of be honest about like at some point say like, Oh, there's not a whole lot of action happening here. Or that was like a pretty non-eventful round. Uh, you know, to be honest with the viewer, because I do feel like one of the things that you sometimes get when you're watching some UFC events is you're constantly reminded that the the broadcast team is working for the UFC and you know, kind of trying to put stuff over for the UFC and give you the, the UFC's version of stuff, which you just don't get in any other sport. If you're if you're watching the NFL, or, you know, you're watching uh, the Major League Baseball, or watching the NHL, it, you get a more honest take from the commentators uh, and that seems rare enough to be noticeable when it happens in the UFC. But yeah, it would be great. I understand, I guess the thinking behind, Hey, you don't want to like a lot of long dwelling shots on the dude who was just knocked out being loaded onto a stretcher. Um, That's kind of a downer. Maybe also, I think a holdover from the era of the UFC, trying really hard to get MMA accepted and to battle against the, this is a dangerous blood sport image uh that was kind of hoisted on it from the early days. So I understand what the thinking might th- there might be, but they also have to realize there are people at the event who are going to see this and who are going to comment on it on Twitter, and so you have to at least mention it. Even if you only mention it to be like, come back later and say, hey, uh, you know, Aljamain Sterling was carted off, but we got word from the back or something that, that he's all right uh, and that he's responsive now and, and everything's okay. Like, you do have to at least acknowledge that because it's not like you can just keep that secret by making sure his, you know, prone body does not end up on the on camera in the background somewhere
0: yeah and thank the mma gods aljermaine sterling is okay in fact taking it in stride i want to read these two tweets from him uh one from december 9th and then one from today uh his initial tweet was hats off to marlon thought i timed the takedown uh, perfectly and he was able to land a nasty knee sucks to be the nail but this is the fight game i'm okay for all those asking uh thank you hands emoji I'm not see I'm not Sir Nigel Longstock. I'm not used to uh Thank you hands you know, emoji this thing.
1: Oh, like they're praying. Yeah, kinda? like the Okay. Namaste, basically. There you That's go. the Namaste emoji. And then
0: from today, this one clearly coming after all Jermaine Sterling has found out he's been memed. Uh lol, I really <laughs> did do the dab. Goddamn internet is forever undefeated. She it. This joke is gonna be around for eternity. This is the fight game. I'm just glad I got thick skin and I can do what I love. Lol, indeed. Way to handle that one, Al Jermaine Sterling. Yeah, so like it's about as good as you can do it. Yeah, and like I said, you know, we're we're lucky that he's okay. But just to briefly hearken back to our previous conversation, the way the UFC handles this on the broadcast sometimes makes you wonder: what if a guy wasn't okay? Like, what would happen if all Jermaine Sterling had been injured or worse? Uh, you know, because of this knee-to-the-face knockout by Marlon Race. Would we get an update at that point? Would something be said? Or would we all just kind of uh, soldier on with the ensuing four and a half hours of uh, commercials for the general or whatever, and, and like, no, none would be the wiser except for the, uh, the working journalists on the ground?
1: That's a very good question. Because, yeah, you can imagine the terrifying alternate reality in which he just doesn't regain consciousness and is rushed to the hospital and is in a coma and... Does the UFC say anything about that at all? That, that's. I hope we never get to find out the answer to that, honestly.
0: Downer questions aside, let's give some pub to Marlon Morris here, though, before we move on. I thought he deserves to get talked about a little bit on the show. Obviously, the longtime World Series of Fighting Bantamweight champion came into the UFC uh, summer 2017 with a fair amount of hype behind him. I think people already recognized Marlon Murray as one of the best men's 135 pound fighters on the planet. But as so often happens, he loses that UFC debut in this case to Raphael, a son, Salvia split decision and kind of, he faded into the background a bit, Yeah. but now over the last month, he's got back to back wins, uh, first on November 11th over John Dodson. That was another split decision. And then he gets this, uh, knockout of the year candidate knee to the face of Aljamain Sterling a minute and seven seconds into their fight uh at UFC Fight Night 123 on Saturday. And it feels like that, especially that knockout, but, you know, the back-to-back wins over perennial contender Dodson and then the highly regarded guy in Aljamain Sterling seems to really have put Marlon Marais back on the map in that division.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, funny what a highlight reel knockout will do for you. But it is, yeah, I mean... You come in there and you, you lose a close fight, people automatically, they're looking at that first one because they want to find out, you know, was this guy a paper tiger because of who he was fighting in another organization, and so they're they're definitely going to jump to some cl- conclusions, but we've seen it before. We saw it with Eddie Alvarez, man, where he came in and lost that first one to Donald Cerrone, and people kind of wrote him off a little bit, but there's always time to, to build back up, and I think that's maybe what we're going to
0: see Marlon Moraes do here. Next question this week comes to us from Taylor Loyal. He writes, Eric Anders moved to 10-0 and this weekend. Uh, with one of the most dominant wins of the night, Anders finished out 2000, 2017 Saturday uh, with four wins this year, including a win over UFC vet uh, Rafael Natal, who retired after Anders knocked him out in the first round. What's next for Anders in 2018? Can we get ya boy matched up with who can we get ya boy matched up? Oh, can we get ya boy matched up against someone in the top 15? Ya boy is really his nickname, huh? Yeah, see here's the, the first thing I wanted to say about Eric Anders who gets uh, the, the publicity that he deserves frankly as a former standout college football player for the Alabama Crimson Tide who has crossed over to mixed martial arts. Uh he see at 30 years old he definitely seems like the kind of dude who could break out and he would be a welcome force in the middleweight division right if he does break out. That said, kind of hate everything about the messaging. <laughs> <laughs> including but not limited to his nickname being Ya Boy. That just Spelled seems... Spelled Y-A yep. space B-O-I Ya Boy.
1: Yep. That's exactly it. Well, and also it just seems like maybe you want to take the long view with your nickname choice because Ya Boy is not going to make as much sense to people like even five years from now. It's kind of like like it's a... Feels like a pop culture reference, almost, to have your nickname be Ya Boy. Also, just feels like, man, this is why you need more of a committee to come up with your nickname. It you, you can't just be you and your bros in the gym, because some bad ideas will get through the filter there, clearly.
0: On the positive end of things, though, clearly Eric Anders has the athleticism to get a lot of stuff done in this sport. Uh, you can always tell a guy who has come out of the Division One. NCAA media gauntlet, uh, because when you put the mic in his face post-fight, uh, he's good. He is he is uh, a good interview, even on the heels of spending 15 minutes beating up Marcus Perez. Uh, you can tell guys that are used to being interviewed, and guys that maybe got some media training at the University of Alabama. So in a lot of ways, he seems like uh, you know a good prospect at 185 pounds. I was going to say the complete package, but at the same time. I don't know if we want to temper our expectations a little bit here. The guy's 10-0. He's only fought one guy with a Wikipedia page, and that happens to be Rafael Natal, who he did knock out in the first round in June of this year. But at the same time, you know, wins over Marcus Perez, Brendan Allen, John Kirk, Brian White. Uh, And Marcus
1: Perez was lucky to see the the final horn in this one, too. It looked like a couple points that he might be put away there.
0: Marcus Perez at least physically looking every bit like a guy they brought in to get Eric Anders over, though, also, right?
1: Well, yeah. Well, and you know the other way you can tell somebody who came out of the uh NCAA Division 1 sports media gauntlet is that we'll com- we'll talk about it constantly on the broadcast whenever there's any kind of thing that to suggest like okay this person might be like a high level athlete on a way that like and in an a scope that you can compare them to some like other known athletic qual- quantities we always jump on that uh and you know as the run of Ovin St. Prue might suggest maybe even embellish it a little bit to the point that we're showing like his Jersey hanging up in the locker room next to Reggie white and Peyton Manning's. Uh, so yeah, we love that kind of stuff in this sport. He already got that going for him. Plus you got a perfect record. It will be interesting to see what you do with the next, because it seems like there's some potential there.
0: Next question this week comes to us from 77 year old, profi- retired professional wrestler, sweet daddy. Seeky. Oh, Nice. He writes, as a proud owner of a no longer available for purchase Dundaso T-shirt. Oh, nice! You really got in there under the wire. Wow! I'm having a little trouble getting on board with Jason Knight's finger bite at UFC Fight Night Fresno. The more traditional eye poke he used <laughs> later on is one thing, but his finger biting a tool in the Dundaso arsenal. What say you, Chad? We already know how Mr. Penalty Box himself, old man Folks, feels about it, out there tripping and slashing all over the adult league hockey ice. Hey, come on, sweet daddy. You do what you got to do sometimes. Well, you can tell sweet daddy Seeky has advanced mic skills because this is a good email. (laughs) That's right. Here's what I'm going to say about the finger bite and why I don't think it can be part of Dundasso. Because you gonna get caught. Yeah, you're not gonna get away with that. There's no way you are surreptitiously finger biting a guy inside the cage and just skating out of here, right? Yeah. Like it probably should have been a disqualification, but if the referee doesn't take a point from you because you straight up bit another man in there, <laughs> he, take the black polo shirt away from him yeah. because that's the least you can do. Yeah. And
1: you're pretty much Your entire hope there is that the other guy, the guy you're biting, doesn't mention it. Like, that's the only way you're really going to let it go. (laughs) You need need him to let it slide. Otherwise, you don't really have a chance. Because all he has to do is what he did in this situation is kind of like look at the ref and be like, he bit me. And then that's it. Like, you know, I've never seen a situation where a guy has really tried super hard to deny something like that, in part because... You don't see too many finger bites uh, or bites in general, as Dave Doyle pointed out on Twitter. MMA uh, media journalist Dave Doyle, uh, you can't really expect to get away with like one of the like only three or four things that was illegal from the very beginning in the UFC. Like, come on! That what? Are you, what are you really hoping is going to happen? I mean, I understand like kind of the circumstances, I guess, because you could see it in the replay where he he looks like he's trying to lift his chin up or something to stop the takedown attempt, and his finger kind of just gets in the guy's mouth. But he did make a conscious choice to bite down on that finger.
0: You know what I surprised me or what I was struck by? Gabriel Benitez was pretty cool with this. <laughs> yes, like, yeah. He took it in stride. Like he didn't ignore it, but like it was basically like high five, it's cool, man, let's keep going. Well, and that was one of the amazing things to me, uh,
1: was that, you know, your boy Jason Knight, Hick Diaz, after the finger bite, he's just like apologetic a bit. It's like, hey man, my bad. And it's like but you did bite his finger. Like, you knew you were biting his finger when you did it. So it's not like a, you know, I tried to kick you on the inside of the thigh and it, it went up and it hit you in the groin. It's like, I saw an opportunity to bite your finger and I took it.
0: And that's a bad look, right? This is like, this was an all-around kind of strange performance for Jason Knight, a guy yeah. who had, uh you know, he lost his last fight to Ricardo Lamas at UFC 214 via first-round TKO. But before that, he'd won four in a row and with this sort of... uh hick diaz vibe as the internet like to call him uh it seemed like he was uh you know if not going places certainly a recognized figure in that division and a guy who had had acquired some notoriety then he comes out here in this fight where he ends up losing a unanimous decision to gabriel benitez and it just it was just a weird performance it kind of looked like he didn't have a plan he didn't really uh come equipped to institute any sort of strategy and then he bites a dude
1: he bites a dude pretty early Comes on. was out there,
0: first round bites a dude. It seemed
1: like he got frustrated, and maybe, I don't know if that was a, a sign of the frustration early on, uh, but you could see it definitely by the end, where he was kind of just getting shoved around there and clowned on a little bit, and it seemed like just he couldn't kind of mentally get himself in that fight for whatever reason. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that was about, but, you know, ho- hopefully... Whatever it was, uh, this performance is a sign to him that he's got to fix something because it just—it seemed like you know physically we know the guy he's a tough guy he can go out there and do it but if you 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 just get so mad that you're out there winging haymakers and getting wild and hoping for you know just something out of nowhere to land that's not going to work against the upper echelon of that division.
0: You know, it also makes me think though is it it makes me think like sometimes we as just mere spectators overlook how fucking difficult slash frustrating. This stuff could be because you, you, you're you a professional fighter. You put in a training camp, right? You probably worked your ass off. It probably was not pleasant, not a nice experience to get ready for this fight. And then you come out there uh, and you just can't do anything. And on top of that, as you know, part and parcel with this sport, you're getting punched in the face yeah. a lot, which I think... That will frustrate almost anyone.
1: Well, yeah, and I could see, like, if you get taken out of your own mental game early, that it could be tough to get back, especially because you can imagine all the things that go through your mind, like, hey, I'm about to lose two in a row, I'm about to go home with half of my money because of the loss, uh, you know, if you allow yourself to start going down that road, you could understand why it might be hard to get back in the fight, plus as anybody who's ever done, like, any kind of martial arts knows, like, some nights you show up and you just don't. Have it the same way you usually do. And that can happen to you at any point. And then, you know, you just, you still got to go out there and everybody's still going to judge you by that one performance, that one like 15 minutes on a Saturday night. Um, yeah. So it's a tough business, as we've noted on many occasions before.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Andy Anderson. He writes, I'm super fired up about Steep Ake. You've been yelling Steep Ake. Steep ache! Versus Francis Ngano at UFC 220. But has anyone pointed out that Arlovsky and Overeem are a little chinny? Not to knock the wind out of the sails or anything, uh, I just think everyone is overlooking Stipe. I mean, he's pretty good, right?
1: Yeah. See, I made a a video about this kind of last week about how I understand why we're getting in total freakout mode about Francis Ngannou. Because God knows it's been a long time since we've had what feels like a new heavyweight contender to get excited about. Especially one who is this excitement worthy. But you look around and it already seems like people are talking about him like he's already the champ. And, like, you know, Joe Rogan is already talking about him like he's Mike Tyson. Uh, his coaches are talking about him being the boxing heavyweight champion within a year. Like, it's already out of hand, and I completely understand why. I get how it happened, but I do think that, and not because I think that, you know, Overeem and Orlovsky suck and so that the wins don't mean anything. I mean, the, that left hand he hit Overeem with,
0: it does not matter who you are, how chinny you are. You could be out there with a the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. And he's getting knocked out by That's that. Right. You
1: could have the thing out there, and he's knocking out the thing with that left hand. So, like, that part of it, I, I mean, I understand people saying, like, hey, maybe we just don't have enough body of evidence to to completely draw a conclusion about Francis Ngannou. But I, I do think not only is it that people are overlooking Stipe, maybe because he's been out a while or just because, like, he did not grip our imaginations the same way that Francis Ngannou has, but – they're kind of forgetting, like, the the narrative of this fight is so goddamn interesting that I wish we could just kind of slow down enough to focus on just this. Because, like we said before, Stipe wins this and he sets the record. The kind of, on paper, unimpressive record for consecutive UFC heavyweight title defenses, which has been impossible for anybody to get to. And he, he has to beat a terrifying man in Francis Ngannou to do it. Like, this is how you would script it. If you were making a movie, yet. So to me, like this is enough that I'm fascinated by this matchup and everything that's going on there that I don't need to look past it to Francis Ngannou's, you know, thousand year reign.
0: Yeah. If you're going to load up a hype train for anyone in the heavyweight division, Francis Ngannou deserves it just because of everything that we've seen from him so far, his personal story, just the sort of, uh, you know, different different spin that he puts on heavyweight MMA fighting, I guess you could say, uh, he's definitely a a marketable guy and uh, a guy who I think deserves all the hype that he gets. Uh, and you know, I feel like we've seen just enough of him to be really, really intrigued because we have the two knockouts of, uh, uh, Andre Arlovsky and Alistair Overeem. but even before that, he goes out there and he fights a guy like Curtis Blades, who for the heavyweight division is a really good wrestler. And Curtis Blades can't really do anything to Francis Ngannou, which I think bolsters the, uh, kind of the claim of Francis Ngannou's coaches, uh, that he picks things up really fast, that he's really easy to coach, that like basically, uh, you, you show him a skill and he puts it in his arsenal immediately and he's ready to go with it. So like that alone, like we've seen the devastating punching power and we've seen, his ability to uh, dictate where the fight goes down so that he can bring that devastating punching power to the fore against Curtis Blades. Like, that's just enough to make you think, hmm, how good is this guy really? And obviously in the heavyweight division, which has kind of a shallow talent pool, you get a a couple of big wins and you are a guy who seems marketable. You're going to fight for the title, right? Uh, so now we have this matchup with Stipe Miocic, but the thing that makes the matchup great is that Stipe Miocic is also a straight up murderer and he's been really, really good in this division. So if it was kicking around in the back of your mind, I think Francis Ngannou was going to go out there and run through Stipe Miocic. I could understand it. But the thing that makes this heavyweight matchup greater than a lot of the ones we've seen recently is that it has the feeling of two young titans. We're going to go out there and mix it up, and I, I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen.
1: Right, but also it it gives us the chance uh, that I think if there's anything you've been waiting to see if Francis Ngannou can deal with, it's the kind of thing Stipe can do, because you've seen Francis Ngannou stand there with good strikers and take their damn heads off. Uh, can Francis Ngannou consistently stop the takedown against somebody who can wrestle and uh, knows how to put it on him and ground and pound and, and can grind away at him? Like, that's the thing... It's a way we haven't really seen him tested yet, and so you know, Steve is somebody who definitely can do. That. I mean, look at his fight over with with Mark Hunt; uh, he can kind of tailor his approach to what you're good at and what you're not good at. Uh, so, in that sense, also, it's a fascinating fight. But also, I mean, I just to me, the possibility that absolutely any outcome is very easily imaginable here. Uh, plus the always fun stakes of just two giant men getting in there for the quote-unquote baddest man on the, the planet title. Yeah, man, I mean, this is the kind of thing where the minute you hear it, you think, am I dreaming? Is this too good to be true? Or who Who's going to break an arm uh, in the next couple of weeks? Um, I, I guess I kind of like that the UFC hurried up and scheduled it so quickly so that we can just get to it without giving it too much of a chance for something terrible to happen.
0: Last question this week comes from Jared Crowley. He writes, "This is in quotes." Frank Trigg don't play. What do you guys think about Trigg's refing during the Fight Night card? Do Frank Trigg play? So we got a couple of notable uh, ref referee plot lines here. Ben from Fight Night One Twenty Three. First of all, former UFC welterweight contender Frank Trigg making his u f c ref refing debut, which i don 't know about you, but just makes me feel old, yeah right because I remember when Frank Trigg was out here having the sport's most bitter blood feud with Matt Hughes over the one hundred and seventy pound title uh, and then we also had the return of Josh Rosenthal this past week, uh, who obviously was a a mainstay in the Octagon for a lot of years, refed the brock lesnar uh uh Shane Carwin fight which uh is probably, at least to me, his most memorable reffing refereeing appearance. And then, uh, a Little Heisenberg was, was a re, was arrested for, I believe, owning a, uh, warehouse in the Bay Area, which had a, a marijuana grow operation in it, did some, some federal time, uh, in prison, now is out, has paid his debt to society and is back refing in the UFC. And I don't know the guy, but by all accounts, like a, a nice guy and his return was greeted favorably.
1: Plus, you should have never had to do time for something like that. Come on. Yeah, it's bullshit. He's in a big
0: warehouse. Also, meat the,
1: the other uh, referee narrative, if you want one, is uh, Mr. Mustache Mike Beltran going out there and catching a lot of heat for his stand-ups. I saw that we had a story on yeah. May Junkie about uh, where uh, Scott Holtzman saying, like, you know, I probably owe him an apology because I had a lot of choice words for him about his stand-ups in that fight, uh, and I got a little carried away. But, yeah, I mean – it did seem like the quick standups were a bit of an issue, not just for Beltran, maybe also a little bit for Frank Trigg in some of his fights. I mean, I don't think there's anything huge that you could really criticize Frank Trigg on. I think that he's going to be on a little, under a little bit more of a microscope just because people know him and people are going to, they know him as a fighter. And so they're going to be watching and be like, okay, can he ref? Uh, can he actually do this? And any little thing they're going to jump on a little more. But, you know, I, I thought he did all right all in all.
0: Yeah, I would say, first of all, good for Frank Trigg for getting out there and reinventing himself, like finding a way to stay around the fight game, if that's the thing that interested him. Uh, and, you know, kind of like reshaping himself as, as a referee. I don't think you would see a lot of guys do that. So kudos to him for doing it. And then I guess maybe devil's advocate question, are we okay with this notion of former professional fighters becoming referees?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, they obviously know the game. If they uh, go through all the training and then kind of work their way up and show that they can do it, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I've understood before when people made the criticism about uh, fighters becoming judges um, and saying like, well, you know, they'll – for one thing, they might still have allegiances through whatever camps and uh, the fighters that come out of there. And they might just have unconscious biases because of their style and so they'll weight certain things more than others. For one thing, I don't know if that's unique just to – judges who are former fighters i think that might be just a thing that is going to happen no matter who you have in there as a judge um but i I think that that criticism is probably uh less worrisome for a referee because he's in there just trying to enforce the rules and not make a, a value judgment about who won
0: and we got it on film he's out there in front of god and everybody
1: yeah see him right there with his sweet ass beard
0: That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days we're not recording the podcast stuff always happens news always breaks the newsletter itself is short it's informative we would love to tell you it's funny and if you don't like it well that's too bad because there's literally no way to unsubscribe as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one One of the co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by uncaged you know this by now but uncaged is card for card the greatest mma game ever it's a physical two-player mma themed card game for people who love martial arts fighting video games and strategy card games like poker and magic the gathering choose from a growing cast of international fighters and fighting styles from all over the world and put them to work putting a beat down on your opponent That's right,
1: Chad. Uncaged plays similarly to arcade fighting games like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, but uses cards instead of buttons and a joystick. Players can select from a growing list of technique cards to punish their opponents with counter punches and body shots. Upcoming expansions are going to add even more styles and techniques, which will make an already great user experience even better.
0: Uncaged features a fast pace of play and great artwork on every card, making it a hit for casual or hardcore fans of card games, fighting games, and or combat sports. Go online to uncaged-cards.com to get your order in for the holidays. It makes a great Christmas gift for the MMA lover on your list. But remember, the only fighting style that matters is yours. Ben, T-City, baby. Okay. T-City, baby.
1: You're pretty happy about this, aren't you?
0: Well, this is a coming out moment, right, for Brian Ortega? It is. A guy who uh, has been undefeated in the Octagon so far uh, during his career. Uh, moves to 13-0-1, obviously the only misstep in his high-profile career so far. That positive test for steroids after his UFC debut against Mike De La Torre back in 2014, uh, which, by the way, was also a rear-naked choke win for Ortega at the time. Gets this one over Cub Swanson via, what do you call this, jumping guillotine choke? Flying guillotine choke? Standing guillotine choke? You're the co-main event podcast jiu-jitsu analyst. It's like a guillotine choke. You're not going to modify it anyway? Because I feel like that doesn't do the splendor of this choke justice.
1: As far as I'm concerned, the only specifications you need to make with a guillotine choke is, is it an arm-in guillotine choke? It's a little different and tougher to finish. Or like a mounted guillotine? that is uh, should be specified. Other than that, I mean, he started out with it standing. Uh, and this one of the tricky things about it was how... Non-threatening, it seemed at first. Like, it seemed like we've seen this before, usually when people kind of do it as like a desperation thing, because it wasn't like Cub Swanson's head got really low. It wasn't like he was sticking his head in there trying to get a takedown attempt or anything and then just got caught in the guillotine by making a mistake. He was up, he, his head was up reasonably high, and Brian Ortega just lifted his arm to wrap it around his neck, which usually doesn't work. Like, he usually can't break down a guy's posture well enough to get the, the choke like that. It's usually just kind of too easy to see coming, and you don't have like, the leverage you need to really latch it on there. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the most impressive parts. Like, that, the fact that once he gets it on there, I mean, he clearly, he believes in it so much. He knows that he can get this. Uh, then he uses the cage to kind of push off and propel himself out and kind of get into it a little more and then while he's up in the air, adjusts his grip. And that I think is the point where like Cub Swanson, you you know, you're in that choke and like a little clock starts in your head. You know, once somebody you, you feel like has got it on, you know you gotta start working your defense, and that clock is ticking, and you run out of time and you don't have like you you haven't gained any ground with your defenses. That's when you really start to go into that oh shit mode. And I think that's kind of what Cub Swanson talked about afterwards. He said he kind of panicked and he felt like he was going to die. But you could also see the same panic on his face in the first round. Because he is beating Brian Ortega in this fight. In both those rounds. He's beating him as long as they're standing up. And it looks like, you know, Brian Ortega is uh, resilient. He can take the punches. But Cub Swanson is chipping away at him. And you start to look at the way it's going on the feet and think, man, five rounds of this is going to be tough for him to take. But even... like. In both those rounds, all he needed was one opportunity to grab onto Cub Swanson, didn't even need a great takedown, didn't need him to make some huge mistake, just one little thing, let let me get close enough and wrap you up somehow, and then suddenly it's like a situation that doesn't seem like it's that dangerous, and then you realize, oh shit, this is trouble.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that makes Brian Ortega such a dangerous submission artist, is that... You're out there with other professional fighters and Cub Swanson is himself a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. So there are a lot of positions that professional fighters get themselves in, especially, you know, on the ground. And especially I would say with submission attempts where they think they're okay. But a guy like Brian Ortega is so good and so dangerous that he goes out there and, and taps guys out in situations where against anyone else, they, they could probably survive it and gut it out. You know, last week we talked about Brian Ortega, and I brought up all of the third round finishes that he had four in a row, private previous to the Cub Swanson fight, and I asked, you know, what to what degree does luck play a role in this? And I actually kind of felt bad about that afterward, uh, so I went and I watched Brian Ortega's uh, last four fights before this one, including the Tiago Tavares TKO back in 2015, and like. Through watching all of his fights, I kind of realized luck is actually playing kind of a a small role in this. Clearly, like, you knock Clay Guida out with 20 seconds to go in a fight that you're about to lose, there's some chance there. There's some serendipity involved. But mostly, like, what I discovered by watching all these fights is that Brian Ortega is just really goddamn good at this. And on top of that, I noticed he gets some kind of uncanny coaching from uh, Henner Gracie in the corner uh, between rounds. In a lot of these fights, uh, in the Guida fight after the first round, uh, Brian Ortega is getting kind of lit up, and Henner Gracie says he's ducking his head in these combinations. Now, fast forward two rounds, you're almost done with the third round. Clay Guida is out there trying to slip punches and ends up ducking straight into a knee by Brian Ortega. Like he's very skilled. He's, he's very athletic. He, as you said, is very durable. He can really take a punch and it seems like he's getting top notch coaching, which is enough to make him a fast climber at 145 pounds. And I would also just add, he basically did the same thing that he did to Cub Swanson, both to, uh, Diego Brandao in their fight back in January of 2016 and sort of against Hanato Moicano in his last fight at UFC 214 where Moicano really obviously wins the second and you get the feeling that he's starting to pull away in the third round and then for some unknown reason he decides he's going to take Brian Ortega down in that fight and takes him down and just immediately gets guillotine choked. It's... It's really remarkable the submission skills that this kid has. Right,
1: but also at this point, at least, fair to call him a specialist, right? Like his stand-up
0: game. His he, stand-up is not bad, though. Like it's not bad. He was but, getting he gets he was getting lit up by Cub Swanson and he got lit up by Clay Guida. But at the same time, he's light on his feet. He throws a lot of he fights really long, which I think is to his advantage at five foot eight. In yeah, he's a big division. guy for the division. And he he like he uses really good straight punches. And yet he's not afraid to, like, pull out some spinning shit if he has to. That said, your point is well made, sir. Like, clearly, Brian Ortega uh, is lights out at submissions and only kind of okay at striking.
1: Right. And it's always a question, especially at this point in the development of MMA, how far you can go with that. Uh, because, we, you know, we've seen a few people do it before and managed to get pretty far like Demian Maia I think is a you know the kind of the textbook example of a guy who's a specialist and who for a while you know kind of fell in love with his own boxing uh, a little bit too much and it was a detriment to him and then realized you know what I don't care if everybody knows that this is the one thing that I want to do I'm just going to go out there and do it anyway and got really far with that until he kind of found the the upper limit of that against Tyron Woodley uh, I would argue Ronda Rousey probably the most recent and most successful specialist uh, and MMA, even she, you know, maybe got convinced that she was a better striker than she was. And then you see somebody like Brian Ortega come along, still young, still plenty of time to develop. Uh, but it does seem like this Cub Swanson fight showed, like, okay, you're good enough at this one thing that you can do it even to people who are watching out for it and who who know that it's coming. But how long are you going to be able to do that? And how, how high up the ranks can you possibly go? When that's the one thing you're you're gonna have to round out the game, it seems.
0: Yeah, well, I guess we're gonna find out in short order, right? Because Dana White seemed to indicate after this fight that he would lean toward Frankie Edgar still getting a shot at Max Holloway for the men's featherweight title. Uh, but Brian Ortega is right there, and if he's not, you know, he it's, it would probably be well advised for him to stay in shape and see what happens heading into a Max Holloway Frankie Edgar matchup. And if he doesn't, you know, sneak in there through some manner, you would think either uh number one contender fight, maybe against uh, Lamas if he wins his fight uh, next weekend at UFC on Fox, or, you know, be next up for Max Holloway after Frankie Edgar, something like that. But uh, Brian Ortega doesn't have too much higher to climb before he's, he's in a title fight, though. I think that you're probably right. If anything, even if it is skill over luck, you keep pulling out these, these fights, in bouts that you are arguably losing right up to the point that you win them. At some point, you're probably just not going to get the submission. At some point, you're not going to be able to get a hold of a guy uh, and lock up the guillotine choke or the triangle or whatever you're going for. At some point, you're going to have to win fights with your striking, and for Brian Ortega, uh, maybe that seems like the the Achilles heel at the highest level.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, fight with him and Lamas. That would be something I I would be interested in to see, because right now I do feel like there's still some unanswered questions but, man, it is a lot of fun to watch him out there trying to answer
0: them. 13-0, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like, clearly, oh, it's been a long time since we saw a jiu-jitsu guy like this, right? Like, Damian Maya, obviously, but in this division, Brian Ortega, super athletic, super uh, offensive off his back, out of his guard, and just like the kind of guy who can, like I said, tap out professional fighters in situations where uh, they think they're going to be safe and they're not, which I think is is kind of a cool thing to have in the landscape of the sport right now. Yeah. All right, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was kind of a rough night
1: at points to be a winner in MMA, at least physically. First, uh, Alexis Davis in this uh, women's flyweight fight against Liz Carmouche. Uh, she wins a very close decision, helped in part by some kind of poor fight IQ down the stretch by Liz Carmouche, but oh my god, did you see her face? Looking like a character out of Star Trek TNG rolling around here with a huge hematoma on the left side of her face. And yet standing there being announced as the winner trying to act like everything is normal. Then the very next fight, the first fight on the main card, uh, which ended up being a crackerjack there with Benito Lopez and, and Albert Morales. And in, look, it looks like in one of the last punches of the fight, like in the last second of the third round, Morales lands this left hand right to the nose of Benito Lopez. And just the sound of his voice as he's talking in the post-fight interview, you could close your eyes, listen to his voice, and be like, you, my friend, have a broken nose. Are you fucking kidding me? These are the winners, Chad.
0: These are the winners in this sport. Tough business. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, not to just continue to flog a dead horse, but when we get into these six fight main cards on Fox Sports 1, are you fucking kidding me, man? We got to do something about this pacing. It is brutal. Consider UFC Fight Night 123, where you come out of it, arguably with two knockout of the year and submission of the year candidates from Marlon Moraes' KO of Aljamain Sterling and Brian Ortega's uh, guillotine choke over Cub Swanson. And at the end of it, you're still just like, whew, that, that was a slog. It's It's past bedtime, even though I just saw two of the most amazing things that you will probably see in the ufc during all of 2017 i'm still just spent
1: and a bunch of commercials for some screwball comedy where two jerk offs look for their dad
0: are you fucking kidding me fucking kidding me we need to do something about this speed it up shorten the show something man
1: and you know it can be done because if you've ever watched a fight card on fight pass there's another way to live and it's much better
0: that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two Two of this week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by our friends at Freshly. Freshly is the new meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door. Freshly does all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. At this point, if you haven't gone online to sign up for Freshly, I'm not sure what you're doing with yourself.
1: That's right, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, select your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who live their lives on the go. All the meals are fully prepared before you get them, so you just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great, too. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week, it's hard to argue with that.
0: Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all-natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugars, and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for Co-Main Event podcast listeners. Just go to the website freshly dot com and use the promo code main event that's main event all one word, no spaces, no capitals to not only get twenty dollars off your first order but twenty dollars off your second order too that's forty dollars in savings for you just for being a friend of the c m e just go to freshly dot com today and get started. Ben. I hesitate to say that things have started moving quickly in the middleweight division because we all know that's not true, but at the same time it feels like. A lot of water under the bridge this past week with, uh, George St. Pierre, uh, announcing that he will vacate the middleweight title due to about, uh, with ulcerative colitis, which we have a friend that has that and it ain't no joke. Uh, but he's out, not going to defend the 185 pound title. Instead, we're going to get Luke Rockhold versus Bobby Knuckles for the undisputed championship. Uh, a turn of events that. Didn't necessarily surprise anyone in the fight game, but at the same time, maybe a uh, maybe it felt like George St. Pierre got our hopes up a little bit that he would, in fact, stick around and defend the middleweight title. And now the thing we thought was true from the beginning turns out to be true. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, I don't know how much you can blame the guy if he really is sick. Right.
1: Well, okay. here's let's just go with this thought experiment for a minute. Say he wasn't sick. Say he was perfectly healthy after this fight, except for, you know, the damage that comes with being in a fist fight in a cage. Uh, but other than that, he's okay. Do you think then he defends this title against Robert Whitaker? Cause I don't, I think there's another, he finds another way where he, I don't think he wanted that fight he never seemed enthusiastic about it. Immediately after he won this fight, uh, you didn't one thing you didn't hear him say was bring on Bobby fucking knuckles. Like I can't wait to defend this middleweight title. I'm gonna hold this shit down for ages and ages to come. Like he just never had that kind of attitude about it. And maybe that was because he was already dealing with some of the health problems from, you know, trying to put on weight or whatever, uh in to get up to middleweight. Who knows? But I never got the sense, and this is a, a criticism people lodged against this fight well before it actually happened. It never seemed like GSP really wanted to be the middleweight champion. It seemed like he wanted to win the middleweight title, make a bunch of money, add that little trophy to his trophy case, and then you know, go back to whatever he was doing until there was something else interesting that popped up.
0: Well, here's a, a quote from Dana White that kind of speaks to that, which you just said, Ben. I'm going to co- cobble a couple together here, but you'll get the idea. This is Dana White at UFC Fresno this past weekend talking about George St. Pierre. He came out, he handpicked picked Bisping, and then went away again. So whatever, it is what it is. He doesn't want to fight anybody at welterweight. That's why he fought Bisping. He didn't want to fight Tyron Woodley. He didn't want to f- fight Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. He didn't want to fight any of the, those guys. He wanted to fight Matt Michael Bisping, and he did, and now he's off again. So listen, I'm not shocked. I'm not mad. It is what it is.
1: But see, the, prob- the part that Dana White is leaving out is that you let him do this. Like, he didn't do this on his own. You know, there was nothing that said you had to give George St. Pierre an immediate shot at the middleweight title just because he wanted. I mean, you wanted the money that comes with a George St. Pierre title fight. Uh, and especially with somebody like Michael Bisping, where you knew he would work up some kind of rivalry. Like, you looked at that. You did the math. You decided this puts money in our pockets. Let's do it. So if you did know that this was how it was going to go, then, you know, you're kind of complicit in it. Uh, you, you know you you helped arrange the circumstances that made this possible because you're only thinking of the, the getting the next payday uh for the u f c s bank account, which honestly uh, I said this when Danny Downs and I talked about this this week in in our trading shots thing that itself seems to be the calling card of the u f c in recent years is thinking short term thinking about the next next big payday you can get your hands on and not thinking about what it does like long term.
0: Yeah, and speaking of it is what it is, as Dana White said, and thinking short term, as you just said, that's going to be the company attitude about George St. Pierre right up until the moment they get that fax from Dublin, right? When, <laughs> you think it when, comes by fax? When they get the bout agreement from yeah, okay. Dublin, I assume faxed over, maybe sent in one of those uh, tubes, like at the bank. Yeah. That's probably how they do it. Yeah. Shoot it across the Atlantic uh, in, in in some pneumatic tubes. As soon as they get that uh, that bout agreement, I have a feeling that we're going to start hearing Dana White say a lot more uh, complimentary stuff about George St. Pierre.
1: Well, see, and on some level, it's like, okay, how mad can you get? Because it was a fun fight, Bisping and GSP. It was like a, a still a historic moment, even if it gets a little bit tainted afterwards. Especially Dana White does his usual Dana White thing where he's so not mad, he's going to go out there and kind of unpromote George St. Pierre by making him look like you know, a real opportunist who is scared of anybody but Michael Bisping, um, which is what he did in that quote where he's like, he didn't want to fight any of these other guys. He handpicked Bisping and then he took off. Uh You know, you're making it hard to sell him if he does want to turn around and come back and fight somebody else. Um, but, you know, you're doing that because you're so not mad, obviously. Uh, then, though, the only people I can really feel bad for in the situation is somebody like Robert Whitaker, who... You know, just did it the old-fashioned way, worked his way up the ranks by beating a bunch of people, wins the interim title, is waiting for his chance to get that big money fight with George St. Pierre to unify the belt and be able to say, hey, I am truly and unquestionably the undisputed UFC middleweight champion, and now he won't get it. Like, now you you've kind of broken that lineage and it can never really be put back together again, and it's not the worst thing in the world because... I won't have a hard time looking at the fight between Bobby Knuckles and Luke Rockhold and thinking of whoever comes out of it as the best middleweight in the world. That will not be a stretch, you know, but it does kind of suck for those guys that now you won't get the chance to say that, you know, you unified the belt or you claim the only version of the UFC middleweight title that can possibly exist.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard for me to be mad at George uh, in this instance, like just from everything that we know about the guy from, frankly, a lifetime spent in fighting Uh, we have no reason to believe that he's actively making up illnesses to duck someone. I fully believe that he probably does have, uh, a debilitating digestive illness. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. It does seem like it kind of stinks for, uh, for Robert Whitaker that he's not going to get, first of all, an enormous money opportunity to fight George St. Pierre. And second of all, kind of like a legacy cementing opportunity to go out there and fight, uh, arguably the greatest of all time to win, win the middleweight title. The flip side of that coin, I guess, is you can't very well ask or expect George St. Pierre to be looking after Bobby Knuckles. George St. Pierre is obviously out for George St. Pierre. He's got to do what's right for him. And uh, maybe if there's a silver lining, like you said, we're going to get a pretty goddamn good 185-pound title fight out of it with Luke Rockhold and Robert Whitaker squaring off. Uh, on the other hand, Ben, any sour feelings on your part for, uh, for uh, Kelvin Gastelum? Do we feel like Kelvin Gastelum would have been a more appropriate choice than Luke Rockhold.
1: You mean just because he goes out there and he gets that win over Michael Bisping more recently?
0: Well, yeah, and Rockhold uh, had the loss to Bisping and then was kind of MIA for a while, came back and and got the win over the executive, David Branch. uh, Or wait, David the executive branch? Yeah. Okay, Uh, which was impressive, obviously, kind of like replanted his flag as an elite 185-pound fighter. But meanwhile, Kelvin Gasolum has been somewhat out here putting in work. He has, but... For me, it's
1: easier for me to look at this and see this as like kind of a new beginning for the middleweight division, uh, with Luke Rockhold against Robert Whittaker, just because there's no question about Luke Rockhold being a real middleweight. Kelvin Gasolin, there's still that doubt a little bit because, you know, if you go out there and you beat him, then people are just going to say, well, okay, he's undersized for the division, something, you know, maybe he needs to knock out some other, uh, notable middleweight before people will really buy him in that sense. But, uh, Just thinking about Whitaker versus Rockhold, that's a crackerjack of a fight right there. And it really, whoever comes out of it, you look at that person and and tell me that he's the best middleweight in the world. Sure, i buy that.
0: Yeah, from a stylistic standpoint, it's a pretty juicy matchup. Obviously, Luke Rockhold, when he really gets going, can be uh, a a handful for anybody at 185 pounds. Uh, He's a huge guy. He moves well. He has devastating kicks. Uh, pretty pretty well rounded all around game, and at the same time, we just saw Robert Whittaker go out there and and take care of Hanato Babalu Souza and Yoel Romero in back to back appearances in 2017. Uh, which uh it's hard to top that body of work for a year. Uh, in this in this sport, so you know if there's a guy out there that can stand up to luke rockhold's size and and speed it might very well be bobby knuckles and a, a fight where we think we're probably just gonna uh potentially get a slugfest for the 185 pound title so like i said before um it's hard to be mad about that as far as i'm concerned yeah anyway that's gonna do it for round number two we will be right back with round number three
1: Robert Glenn Lawler, Rafael Souza dos Anjos are fixing to throw down at the UFC on Fox this Saturday night. Now, in another alternate universe, this is the champion versus champion super fight that never quite materialized. Former UFC welterweight champion Robbie Lawler, former UFC lightweight champion Rafael dos Anjos, here they are meeting at welterweight. Now that uh, dos Anjos has gone up a division, and man, this seems like. Could be a hell, whole hell of a lot of fun going down on
0: the Big Fox. It sure does, and don't forget where we're doing this thing. In the peg. That's right. Winnipeg. Go Blue Bombers. Home of the Blue Bombers, Ben.
1: Still, uh, the my fond memory of going to a, a fight event in Winnipeg uh, was seeing a dude who had been involved in a fight right next to the concession stand. Uh, and then as he is being led away in handcuffs, his face bloodied from the fight, uh shirt kind of halfway torn off, did the like fake lunging at some at someone kind of thing that he felt Wait, like, like, like some, an innocent
0: bystander. Or yeah, like, just like somebody a, who was
1: just standing there watching it. Seemed, maybe they said something. I don't know. But he did like the the kind of like lunging at them kind of thing. And it's like, dude, you're in handcuffs and there's cops on either side of you. Like that's a guy who's really committed to his gimmick there.
0: That's how they do it up in the up in the peg. And his gimmick is being drunk and violent. Rafael Dos Anjos, 2-0 since moving up to welterweight. And, of course, Robbie Lawler lost his 170-pound title to Tyron Woodley but then backed that up with a unanimous decision win over Donald Cerrone. Ben, I'm almost inclined to say the records don't matter. Throw out the records because you're going to get a banger in this one, we think, right?
1: Yeah, I, you know, this one for me is incredibly difficult to call the more I think about it. I was sitting there trying to make my pick, looking at the betting odds. Uh, you know, what I saw is they were both... -115 at the last line that I looked at uh seemed like the oddsmakers having similar trouble with it. I really don't know what to expect from this one. Cuz on one hand, you know uh Dos Anjos, he can be knocked out. I suppose you wonder about if he can stand up to the power of somebody like Robbie Lawler uh up a division. Uh especially you wonder if he can still put forth that pressure style on somebody like Robbie Lawler, who would love for you to do that, who would love for you just to walk right into uh, his punches so he didn't have to go looking for you. Um, but then on the other hand, I mean, you know, he's an excellent athlete who can has a high motor that he can just kind of keep up all night long if he has to, as long as he can stay conscious.
0: Yeah, we've seen Rafael Dos Anjos be a an aggressive and effective striker, knocked out uh, Benson Henderson, TKO Donald Cerrone, TKO Jason High, We've also seen him be uh, an aggressive and grinding grappler, a guy who's going to go out there and, and, you know, his gas tank isn't going to run out. He's going to uh, basically put you through the meat grinder for 25 minutes if he can. I wonder, moving up a division against a striker as ferocious as Robbie Lawler, if this is a fight where Rafael Dos Anjos thinks maybe this is one I want to try to use the wrestling skills and test the gas tank of Robbie Lawler rather than go out there and trade punches with the guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, but if you, in order to test his gas tank, you're going to have to risk taking one of those Robbie Lawler hammers to your face. And how many of those can you take if you're Rafael Sancha? I mean, that's the the question for me. Uh I also at this point you you always wonder a little bit about uh where Robbie Lawler's head's at, where his motivation is. I mean, he never comes into a fight looking unprepared, but you just don't hear that much from him, for one thing, ever since the, he lost the title. It just seems like, you know, he's going to keep showing up to fight. And if he has some kind of like grand career ambitions, he's not exactly a verbose guy to begin with. So maybe you just you get the sense that he's kind of showing up for whatever you got next for him and doesn't really care one way or another. But he's the guy who's been at it so long and is just such kind of a hard nose, old school guy that he could probably do that more or less indefinitely as long as he wants to.
0: Yeah, you know, he fought four times during 2014 and capped that, obviously, by winning the welterweight title from Johnny Hendricks. But since then, uh, he hasn't been the most active guy in the world. He only had one fight during 2015, and obviously that was the uh, the slobber knocker against Rory McDonald, which would have probably ended the public lives of a lot of lesser humans. Uh, but he came back in 2016 and beat Carlos Condit and then lost the title uh, to Tyron Woodley. But since then, that was the end of July 2016. So 18 months ago, uh, he's only fought once just the the fight against Donald Cerrone at UFC 214, which was almost exactly one year later. So yeah, with Robbie Lawler, a, and a guy who's been in the game a really long time, a guy who who's getting up there a little bit in years, uh, it just seems like he's he's pacing himself and or dealing with some some injuries, one or the two. Uh, I don't know that I'm necessarily worried about mindset or like where his head is at, because I think we know where Robbie Lawler's head resides, and it, it's in a very dark corner. Violenceville. On top of a, 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 a throne made of the skulls of his adversaries. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, man, uh, it seems like Rafael Dos Anjos is a guy that... Uh, at least I maybe have a tendency to to uh, like underestimate, and not that I don't think the guy's good, but I feel like every time he goes out there and fights and he's victorious, I come away with it thinking, "God damn, Rafael dos Anjos is really good." Like maybe I didn't give him the full credo that he deserved as as one of the elite fighters in whatever division he decides to to fight in. Uh, so if Robbie Lawler comes into this thing rusty or you know somewhat disinterested or not fully prepared to go, like this could be a rough night against a guy. Uh, who has, like I said, a very grinding style in, in Dos Anjos.
1: Well, it also seems like the stakes of this one, I mean, you got to think the guy who comes out of this and, and probably ends up in a welterweight title fight. Uh, unless, you know, I don't know, can people get excited for Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley too?
0: Can people get excited for Hafield, Dos Anjos, Tyron Woodley?
1: Can people get excited for Tyron Woodley versus Fighter X? That seems like the question we're asking.
0: Here's, here's something that will tell you, either about the current state of welterweight or what people think about Robbie Lawler. After all that inactivity and the loss of his title, he's still officially the number two ranked contender in the welterweight division behind only Wonderboy Thompson. So despite the fact we haven't heard or seen much from him in the last year, he's still right there knocking on the door. Dos Anjos, obviously, a little bit more of a Johnny-come-lately, but he's also ranked number four. So you're right, this does in some ways shape up as a title eliminator, but it's not going to give Tyron Woodley that big money fight that he's been uh, itching for since he's been champion, which I guess is maybe another kind of bummer about George St. Pierre, either not being that interested in 170 pounds or, or now being out trying to take care of some serious health concerns.
1: Yeah. Well, but at least all you need is a uh, Fox on your TV and you're going to get a whole hell of a lot of a fun fight card. Plus I know Chad's excited about this four fight main card. He That's see right.
0: Plus you get these, uh, these Fox cards start early. That's right. Yeah. Usually, you don't have to sit around until ten o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock in the one true true time zone.
1: And if you tune in early for the Fox Sports One prelims, you get to see the Bang Bus, all Bangboche.
0: Okay, that's that's an interesting nickname. You, that's a, Sir kind Nigel, kind Sir of Nigel of gave little, him that nickname. You little little were here for it. a little bit of a throwback, for yeah, to that nickname. Sir Sir takes Ni- you back to two thousand fourteen, maybe.
1: I'm telling you, people people
0: are gonna like that one. I think that How was about, one of some of Sir Nigel's best work. How about Josh Emmett? stepping in to fight Ricardo Lamas, We talked about uh, Ricardo Lamas a little bit earlier. Ricardo Lamas was supposed to fight Jose Aldo here, but when Frankie Edgar got injured and pulled out of the Max Holloway fight at UFC 218, they obviously reshuffled the whole deck, pulled Aldo out of this fight, and now you got Josh Emmett, a guy who uh, is already, what is he, one, two, three, three and one in the UFC. Uh, he's going to get a, a huge opportunity here to go out and fight Ricardo Lamas. You, get, you don't have the the odds for this fight card in front of you do you
1: uh give me one second and I can have the odds for this because fight that's card in front of me. you know you
0: would expect Ricardo Lamas to roll through this one just because yeah. Josh Emmett is a little bit of an unheralded dude but right now Josh
1: Emmett going off plus 220
0: okay so there you go if you got 20 dollars you never want to see again you feel like doubling that up there's your guy
1: I guess so I wouldn't feel you too long good about shot that, underdog Josh yeah. Emmett yeah
0: no you really gotta not want to see that twenty dollars again okay I'm being trying to be transparent here by my uh, for-entertainment-only purposes picks.
1: Yeah, these, this is not count as financial advice.
0: You want to do Just Saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. I'm going to do my Just Saying stuff because it's UFC on Fox 26 related. Uh, is this a guilty pleasure, Ben, that I'm just saying I'm pretty jacked up to watch Santiago Ponzanibio fight Platinum Mike Perry? Is that, Sh- does that count as a guilty sure. pleasure, or can I feel good about it? Uh, I mean, you shouldn't feel great about it. But. Did you see that Platinum Mike Perry has those new PMP hats in the uh, – they look like uh, the Floyd Mayweather hats? No. The Money Team hats, except uh, Mike Perry has them. They say PMP, Platinum Mike Perry.
1: Are they? Do they look like them to the point of maybe like an infringement issue?
0: Well, I think, you know, copyright cases are hard to prove. Okay. So I think he's probably on pretty – That's what we're banking on? Pretty stable grounds here. Plus, you know Mike Perry's got a, an ace's intellectual property attorney on retainer. Yeah. Certain of that. That's
1: the first thing he did. <laughs> so what, you're just, what are you just saying just about saying, this? i
0: I feel like it's a guilty pleasure, but I'm super excited to watch Santiago Ponzanibio fight Mike Perry. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. Plus the thing about the hats. I was also just saying that.
1: Okay. Jed, I'm just saying, I know by now you've seen this viral video of the kid in Tennessee getting bullied, <laughs> talking about bullying and everything. Um, and as has become kind of like just typical of the cycle of these things, he comes out with this video talking about, uh, bullying and everybody kind of, oh, okay, it's very touching, the wisdom of a child kind of thing. Uh, and then it seems like a lot of famous people, I don't know if they're consciously trying to jump on this because they see, hey, here's an opportunity to be a good guy. Capital letters, good guy. Uh, and express my support, and therefore kind of piggyback on this kind of social media fame. But that's just like the inevitable thing that happens next from athletes to actors, all kinds of people jumping on it. And of course, some UFC fighters were in on that. Uh, The UFC itself uh, jumping in there saying that uh, they, they support this kid and everything. I guess I'm just saying it can be a little weird coming from the UFC and from... You know, depending on which UFC fighter we're talking about, because there is a fair amount of bullying in one way or another that seems to come with this sport, either like at the executive level or just between fighters. And naturally, you know, it it obviously takes on a different kind of context in a sport like this. I'm just saying it's a little weird for everyone to suddenly decide that they're super against bullying just because there's a viral video out about it. Just
0: saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to catch you up on all the stuff that happens at Lawler versus Dos Anjos UFC on Fox 26 from the Bell MTS place in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Is that right? Is it in Manitoba? Right, uh, no idea. There's no way to know. We'll get out. We'll No get, one could possibly no, know no that. No way we could possibly fact check that. Then we're going to get a little bit, a little bit of a breather, Ben, because we'll have until December t- 30th, uh, to start breaking down UFC 219, which obviously is the Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm women's featherweight title fight. A lot of other fun stuff on that card as well. But we will be here every step of the way. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Are we even sure that there is a Manitoba Canada? Have we checked on that? Hold on, efforting. I'm efforting this. Winnipeg is the capital and largest city of the province of Manitoba. Boom! You feel pretty proud about that one? It is near the longitudinal center of North America and is 110 kilometers from the U.S. border. It's also the place of the confluence of the Red.